The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter, abridged for the Presbyterian Board of Publications, 1839. This review is by Archibald Alexander. If any minister of modern times had a right to admonish pastors and to prescribe to them rules to be followed in the management of their flocks, that man was Richard Baxter. For he exemplified in his own conduct everything to which he exhorted others and his success was equal to his fidelity and diligence. The fruits of his labors at Kidderminster were very remarkable, and they were permanent, for the change produced by his ministry in the religious and moral condition of that town are not entirely worn out to this day. And we are happy in having his own account of the means used, which were attended with such signal success. Every Thursday evening, such of his neighbors as were desirous of it, met at his house for conversation and religious exercises, each one having liberty to propose his doubts or to ask any questions. To those he gave suitable answers, and before they separated, it was his custom to call first upon one and then another to lead in prayer, besides praying with them himself. This, with the singing of a psalm, was all that was done. On another evening, some younger persons met and spent two or three hours in prayer. On every Saturday evening, it was customary to meet at each other's houses to repeat the sermon of the preceding Sabbath and to prepare for the duties of the next day. Once in a few weeks, they had, on one occasion or another, a day of humiliation and prayer. Every religious woman who escaped the dangers of childbirth kept with a select company of her neighbors a day of thanksgiving for God's mercy and her safe deliverance. Every week he and his assistant took fourteen families each for catechizing and conference, the assistants going into the country, and Mr. Baxter attending to such as were in the town. He first heard them recite the words of the catechism and then examined them about the sense of it and lastly urge upon them the state of mind and practice which corresponded with the truths recited. He was careful not to press them hard, when through ignorance they were unable to answer, but passed them by and said something by way of exhortation. He spent about an hour with each family and permitted no other persons to be present, lest through bashfulness any should be embarrassed and prevented from answering freely, or lest one should be led to speak of the ignorance and mistakes of his neighbors. Every Monday and Tuesday afternoon was spent in these family visitations, and the mornings of the same days were spent by his assistant in the same exercises. Every first Wednesday in the month a meeting was held for parish discipline, and every first Thursday of the month was a minister's meeting for discipline and disputation. His public preaching met with an attentive, diligent auditory. Before he entered the ministry, God blessed his private conversation to the conversion of some who continued to be exemplary Christians. These, in the beginning of his ministry, he was wont to number as his jewels. Yet after a while, they so increased that he could not keep count. His church was commonly very full, and the hearers so increased that it was found necessary to erect several additional galleries for the accommodation of the people. On the Lord's Day, there was no disturbance to be seen in the streets, and as one passed along, you might hear a hundred families singing psalms or engaged in repeating sermons. When he first came to Kidderminster, 
there might perhaps be found one family in a whole street who worshipped God. When he left a place, there were some whole streets in which there could not be found a single house in which the worship of God was not maintained. Even in those houses, which were the worst, such as taverns and ale houses, there were commonly found one or more who feared God and called upon his name. Such as conducted themselves scandalously were excommunicated, and of six hundred communicants there were not twelve of whose piety he did not entertain a good hope. Some of the poor men of the congregation competently understood the body of divinity and were able to judge in difficult controversies. And some of them were so able in prayer that very few ministers were equal to them in order and usefulness. Abundance of them were able to pray in a very proper manner, with their families or others possessing a remarkable gift and lively utterance, which rendered it edifying to hear them. And the innocency of their lives and the temper of their minds were such as to call forth the praises of all who regarded the truth. The professors of religion were generally of humble mind and carriage, of meek and quiet behavior to others, and of blameless conversation. The account which he gives of the means made use of to produce such a blessed state of things are also worthy the attention of every pastor, the people among whom he was settled had not been previously hardened under the preaching of the gospel. They had never before enjoyed an awakening ministry, but only a few formal cold sermons. Baxter himself was in his vigor and full of ardor and animation. His voice, too, was naturally penetrating and moving, which with common hearers is a great matter. He preached also with the feelings of a dying man. For on account of his bodily infirmities, he had the prospect of death continually before him. For his impression at this time was that a year or two would terminate his earthly labors. But the circumstance which seemed to gain him the most ready access to the hearts and consciences of his people was the impression made on their minds that he sincerely sought their good. If the people had entertained the least suspicion of the purity and benevolence of his motives, if they had supposed that he was erroneous, scandalous, or covetous, the effect of his ministry would have been small. A bishop must have a good report from those that are without. He was also greatly aided by the prayers and efforts of the godly in the place. They thirsted after the salvation of their neighbors, and being dispersed all over the town, they were everywhere ready to discountenance vice and error to justify piety and to convince, reprove, and exhort men as occasion offered and as there was need. They also inculcated the duty of prayer and the sanctification of the Lord's day. And it was a custom for those who were intelligent and serious when they had a meeting at their houses to repeat sermons and so on. They invited their ignorant neighbors to attend so that often the houses of the better sort of people on such occasions would be crowded with poor people. Their holy, humble, and exemplary lives were of the greatest advantage to the success of his ministry. Nothing so convinces men of the truth and reality of vital religion as a living example and meek and humble spirit of its professors. While, on the other hand, there is no greater obstruction to the gospel than the inconsistent lives and unsavory spirit of many who are in the communion of the church. The unity and concord which were preserved among the pious were also of a great benefit. The place is also in a good degree exempt from those sects and heresies which abounded at this time in most places of the land.
private meetings were found to be an effectual help to piety in the place. For by this means the truths that had slipped away were recalled, and serious impressions which were in danger of being worn away were renewed, and good desires cherished. These meetings were found also greatly to increase the knowledge of the people, and by the continual exercise of the gift of prayer, many improved in their gifts, and the younger learned to pray by hearing those that were older. They furnished a preacher also with an opportunity of knowing the persons who were beginning to be serious. For if anyone was wounded by the arrows of truth and the public dispensation of the word, he would be sure to drop into these meetings. By the means of these, also, idle meetings and a loss of time were prevented. And so far were these religious meetings from producing schism, that they were the chief means of preventing anything of the kind. For the pastor was commonly there in the midst of them, solving their doubts, silencing their objections, and moderating them in all things. It gave him also no small advantage that being a single man and spending little on himself, he was able to distribute the larger part of his income among the poor. And when he found any of their children possessing promising talents, he would, by means of his own funds and the aid of his friends, send them to be educated at the university. Several of these became useful preachers, and with their brethren were ejected by the act of uniformity, while others conformed and remained in the ministry. And given charitable relief to the indigent, he never made it a question whether they were good or bad, for he thought the bad had souls and bodies which needed charity most. And he left this encouraging and important fact on record, that what little funds he ever acquired were obtained when he gave most away and that when he has been able to give little, his increase has also been diminished. He also promoted the good work by giving away good books. Most of these he wrote himself, and of the small books which he published, he gave every family one, which amounted to near 800. It was a saying of Baxter, verified in the experience of many pastors, that freeholders and tradesmen are the strength of religion and of the community, while gentlemen and beggars and servile tenants are the strength of iniquity. Another great help to his success was the practice already mentioned of dealing with every family apart, catechizing and instructing them. That which was spoken to them personally seemed to awaken their attention much more than the same truths heard from the pulpit. The faithful exercise of church discipline also was no small furtherance of his people's good. For Baxter found that without discipline he never could have kept the religious part of the church from divisions and separations. Pious people have, from their very character, an inclination to separate from the irreligious and profane. And if they had not seen a disposition to separate such from the communion, they would have been disposed to withdraw from the society. Many abstained from coming to the Lord's table for fear of discipline. For out of 1,600 of proper age to come to the Lord's table... There were no more than 600 communicants. It was a custom, however, for all to come that would, so that their exclusion was their own act. And as to the posture and partaking of the ordinance, every one acted according to his own judgment. He baptized the children of all sorts, but he required the parents to give him privately or publicly an account of their faith. And if any father was a scandalous sinner, he made him confess his sin openly before he would baptize his child. If the father refused, the administration of the ordinance was postponed until the mother brought the child, 
for he says he rarely found both father and mother so destitute of knowledge and faith as in a church sense to be incapable of receiving this ordinance for their children. Another thing which facilitated his success as a pastor was the manner in which he brought forth the truth in his preaching. He adapted his sermons to the peculiar circumstances of the flock. The subject of his preaching was the fundamental doctrines of the gospel, which were so frequently exhibited that they became familiar to the thoughts of the people. But to keep his hearers humble and to prevent vain self-sufficiency, he was accustomed to put something in every sermon which they did not know before. By this means they were kept in a learning state, and their thirst for knowledge was both excited and gratified. For he thought if preachers tell their people but what they know already, they will be tempted to turn preachers themselves and suppose that they have learned all the minister can teach them and have become as wise as he is. Ministers will be despised if they do not possess knowledge superior to that of their people. But if he communicates to them things which they did not know before, by a daily addition to their former knowledge, they will be led on with desire and delight. He never thought it expedient to take up their time with unprofitable controversies which could not produce edification, nor did he affect novelties in doctrine contrary to the received opinions of the universal church, but such things as tended to illustrate the great doctrines of the gospel. One important circumstance connected with the success of this eminent pastor was that he kept himself free from all worldly entanglements, so that his whole time was devoted to his ministry, except what was taken up by sickness. Personally, he had nothing to do with the ties of the parish. Everything of this kind he committed into the hands of others, and he directed that where his parishioners were poor, the debt should not be exacted but entirely remitted. The preceding account of Baxter's labors is taken from the history of his own life and times, written by himself, and it contains the best practical commentary which can be given of his reformed pastor. And a better model can scarcely be found for the imitation of the clergy of all denominations in our day. It is true that Baxter was a man of great abilities and extensive learning, but these qualifications do not appear to have been those which contributed most to his success. His fervent zeal, his tender compassion for souls, his manifest sincerity, his wise selection of appropriate means, and his indefatigable diligence were the true reasons of his success. And can it be shown that any minister ever possessed these qualifications of an evangelical pastor and yet labored without effect? Why may not that which was done by Baxter be done by every pastor? Perhaps few can preach so well as he did, but if the hearts of ministers were now as much in their work as was his, their preaching would be with power and a blessing would attend it. And if they would watch for souls as they that must give an account, they would find work enough to occupy their heart and their hands. Entire devotedness to the duties of their office seems essential to an efficient ministry. Their worldly pursuits and avocations may be in themselves very innocent, but it is enough to condemn them that they are avocations, which call them away from their proper work. When it was recently announced by a clergyman from the other side of the world that the missionaries of a certain society had been deeply engaged in land speculations, how did it shock all our best moral feelings? And if it should be told that any of our American missionaries had so managed their small salaries that by judicious speculation they had become rich and were living in splendor, what should we think? How should we feel? 
But who will undertake to prove that pastors at home are not bound to be as dead to the world and as much devoted to their work as any missionary? It's not the ministerial character as sacred here as in foreign countries, and it's not the salvation of the souls committed to them as important as the salvation of an equal number of the heathen. There is little doubt, but that the true reason why missionaries do commonly excel in piety is because they are entirely cut loose from the possessions of the world. They give up all prospect of owning property. They have made up their mind to sacrifice entirely what the world calls independence and to expect to have nothing but food, raiment, and shelter from the weather. And for these necessaries, they are content to rely upon the free will offerings of the church. If they can turn any talent to profit, it is not for themselves, but for the common cause. What a noble example to see the venerable carry laboring assiduously in teaching, not to enrich himself, but to bring every dollar of a large salary and cast it into the common treasury and contended to receive from them no more than the common share of the poorest missionary. Oh, could we see such examples at home of self-denial and disinterestedness, we might begin to hope that Zion was about to arise from the dust and that God had put a new spirit into her watchmen. There is no vice, perhaps, which the clergy in our country are so liable to be infected with as covetousness. And yet this is no less a crime, according to the word of God, than idolatry. Ministers, it is true, are generally poor, but they may be greedy of gain notwithstanding this, and may neglect the responsible duties of their awful calling for the sake of filthy lucre. The necessity which is often laid upon them by the unjust parsimony of their people to provide by their exertions for their own households often becomes a snare to them. They get accustomed to worldly business and perhaps expert in managing pecuniary matters. And when any man once gets his hand in, in a way of making money by lawful means, it will be difficult for him to relinquish the pursuit. And as to stop in when he has a sufficiency, this he is no more likely to do than any other man who makes riches the object of their pursuit. The point of sufficiency is a vanishing point. When a man approaches it, it recedes from him and still keeps as far ahead as at the beginning so that the pursuit which at first promised to be short and soon ended proves to be interminable. You cannot serve God and mammon, says our Savior. This is eminently true as applied to the ardent pursuit of wealth and the duties of the holy ministry. No man can be much occupied with worldly cares and business and at the same time have his heart duly engaged in the duties of his pastoral office. These last will either be neglected, slightly performed, or the genuine spirit, which should pervade and animate the whole service, will be wanting. And then it will be like a body without a spirit. Another danger is that the leading and wealthy part of his parishioners, wanting an apology for their own love of the world, will be secretly delighted to find their minister, who should be their reprover, animated by the same spirit and thoroughly engaged in the pursuit of wealth, as themselves. And how can he be faithful in declaring the whole counsel of God concerning the love of riches? Will not his mouth be stopped? Or if inconsistently he performs his duty in the pulpit, will not everyone be ready to apply to him that proverb, Physician, heal thyself, thou that teachest another, teachest not thou thyself? The worldly minister, when he meets his parishioners from time to time, has so much to say about the common objects of their attention 
that he cannot edge in a word of admonition or divine instruction. Indeed, such ministers have commonly little talent for religious conversation, and people do not expect it of them. Or if, against a current of their thoughts and affections, they force themselves to give utterance to some commonplace remarks on the subject, they come out so dryly and formally that, instead of warming, they freeze the feelings of their people. Such ministers would relinquish the sacred office if they could do it honorably, and surely it would be more consistent for some to give up the office than nominally to continue to wear the clerical character while they perform scarcely any of its duties. Here is a secret of the frequent dissatisfaction between pastors and their flocks, and a cause of such frequent disruption of the sacred bond cast around them at their installation. When has it been known that a people have been solicitous to be freed from the oversight and preaching of a truly devoted, faithful, and laborious minister? Though he may not be a first-rate man as to talents, yet if he is humble, affectionate, sincere, and laborious, in a study, in a pulpit, and in a family, such a man will find himself seated in the affections of his flock. And if a few fastidious and conceited hearers wish for more learning, more eloquence, and a more fascinating style of preaching, the great body of the people will cleave to him and with docility receive the word from his mouth and will always rejoice to see their pastor entering their dwellings. The poor, among whose humble cottages he often directs his steps, will hail him as a friend and benefactor and will bless God for giving them so faithful a guide and instructor. While some pastors are rendered almost useless by worldly entanglements, others sink into a state of discouragement. When preparing for the sacred office, they please themselves with the hope of doing much good. In prospect, everything looked fair and pleasing, and they anticipated that their labors would produce a great visible effect. But when they go forth and are fixed in a charge where the people are careless and ignorant, and pay little attention to their instructions, and afford no visible fruits of their labors. They become disheartened, and perform their parochial duties with languor, because without hope of success. Fault is found with the situation of the parish, or the character of the flock, and some other place must be sought. But they cannot find a congregation of angels, or even one made up of saints, and they are never likely to be suited. We entertain the opinion that more than half of the cases of the removal of ministers will not be sanctioned by the great head of the church, who sees and observes all the affairs of his kingdom on earth. Good men often make sad blunders in this matter. They literally go from home because annoyed by some perverse neighbors or unreasonable parishioners who, finding how easily their sensibility is wounded, take pains to vex them. They cannot bear the thorn in the flesh, the piercings of which are not deep and dangerous, but constant, and they cannot get clear of it. Oh, if they would look to that God whose grace is sufficient to enable them to bear all trials, they would not leave their place to escape an evil which very probably in the end would do them good. We are much inclined to the opinion that when a minister has been called in providence to take charge of a people, if he would resolve to lay himself out to promote their best interests of every kind, if he would begin to instruct the ignorant, to train the youth, to warn the unruly, to feed the flock with the pure milk of the word, to make every sacrifice for their benefit, and to bear with unmurmuring patience all their ill treatment, 
still praying for them and tenderly watching every opportunity to do them good. His difficulties in time would be removed or lessened. His enemies would become reconciled. The careless would take on them the serious profession of religion. And what was like a wilderness would become like the garden of the Lord. Who had a harder lot than Oberlin and Neff among the wild rocks of the Alps and a people as wild as the land which they inhabited? And yet by patient endurance, by unceasing effort, by wise measures of improvement, and by the spirit of ardent, inextinguishable piety, they were enabled by the blessing of heaven which is sure to attend such labors to see the work of God prospering in their hands. They had the pleasure of beholding such a transformation in the aspect of society as filled our hearts with joy and gratitude and their mouths with praise. And what was there in Kidderminster when Mr. Baxter began his labors there, which promised much comfort or success? But by faithful, persevering labors, such labors are within the reach and ability of any pastor. If only his heart be right, he accomplished a glorious work of reformation and was the honored instrument of saving a multitude of souls who are now as stars and as crowned while he rejoices with them before the throne of God. To some, this kind of life, replete with labors, and cutting off the preacher from all the advantages of earthly gain, honor, and comfort, seems to be unreasonable. They are ready not merely to apologize for the course pursued by ministers who engage in worldly pursuits, but to put a plea for justification. Ministers are but men, and too much ought not to be expected of them. They commonly have families for which they are bound to provide or be worse than infidels. They are educated men and possess feelings as refined as others of this class. And why should this profession be doomed to a life of self-denial and hardship? If their people are unable or unwilling to make provision for them, they have a right and are bound to attend to worldly affairs in that degree which is necessary to furnish them with the sufficiency of this world's goods, if not an independence And by mingling with the people in the commerce and common intercourse of life, they conciliate the men of the world and remove the prejudice so extensively imbibed that religion renders men austere and unsociable and is inimical to the innocent pleasures of life. And if under the favor of providence they acquire property by lawful exertions, they should not be censored for that which all other men are indulged to pursue and possess. Now, in this defense, there is so much truth and error mingled that we will not undertake to discriminate between them. But let us suppose that a fragment of authentic ecclesiastical history had come down to our times containing the following statement of facts. The Apostle Paul, though much devoted to his master's servant, yet was not inattentive to his own worldly interest. Traveling much, he had the opportunity of seeing the improvements of one country and introducing them into another. By watching his opportunities of increasing his fortune, he was able to lay up money enough to purchase a handsome house at Corinth, which he furnished in a plain but rich and elegant manner. And while at Ephesus, he found an opportunity of making a very favorable speculation in some lots and houses, which were brought to the hammer through the failure in business of their former owners. Some of his brethren, who were less skillful in trade or less favored with opportunities of making valuable acquisitions of this kind, seemed disposed to censor him as acting inconsistently with his high vocation, 
but he despised such censors as knowing that they proceeded from envy of his success and business. And as long as he lived, though he met with some losses, he continued to increase in wealth, so that when he suffered martyrdom at Rome, he was worth an estate valued at blank. But we must stop. No Christian feelings can endure such a representation, either in the case of Paul or Peter or John or Apollos or Timothy or any other primitive preacher. Such a narrative as the above, if it had been contained in the Acts of the Apostles, would have ruined the Christian religion. And our feelings are so correct on this subject that any representation of a similar kind of traffic in the world, an acquisition of wealth by any of our missionaries abroad, would raise such a hue and cry against them that the missionary cause could not sustain itself in these circumstances for a single year. But on what principles do we make so wide a difference between what was unbecoming and inconsistent with the sacred office in the apostles' days and on our times? Is it not the same Lord that we serve? Is it not the same gospel which is entrusted to us? Is not eternity as near to us and as important as to them? Is not the day of judgment many hundred years nearer? Is not the salvation of immortal souls as deeply interesting now as it ever was? And do not ministers now take upon them as solemn ordination vows, as were ever assumed by men? Where then is the ground of our different feelings in regard to certain courses of conduct? It has no just foundation. It may be traced to our own selfishness, which blinds us in regard to all that relates to our own interest or ease. But if it might be supposed that the circumstances of the apostles and primitive teachers exposed as they were to persecution, and having the whole world opposed to them, might make them indifferent to worldly things, which if they possessed, they could not retain. Yet how shall we account for the high requisition which the Christian world makes on the missionary compared with the pastor at home? Do we not condemn our own worldliness? self-indulgence and indolence, while we would censor in a missionary what we as a matter of course allow to our ourselves to pursue or to enjoy. Certainly ministers at home are as much bound to be self-denying, faithful, and laborious as those who go to foreign countries. The missionary may be exposed to more hardships necessarily, but we defy any man to show that the minister at home is not under obligations to labor as faithfully and to make for the cause of Christ as great sacrifices as those beloved men who have forsaken their native land and all their dear relatives without the expectation of ever seeing them again. Indeed, as these painful sacrifices are such as ministers are not required to make, they seem to be bound in other ways to show an equal attachment to Christ's kingdom and to labor more indefatigably for the conversion of souls perishing all around them. There is no escape from self-condemnation in this case, and the only way by which we can evade the condemnation of our judge is to condemn ourselves and humble ourselves in penitence before him, lest he deal with us according to our sins and reward us according to our iniquities. Let us remember that the time is short and that what we do must be done quickly. We must work while the day lasts, for soon the night comes when no man can work. Is it not a sign of God's displeasure that he is calling off from the harvest field some of the most faithful and efficient laborers? But there is slight lamentation in the churches for these great losses. The righteous perishes and no man lays it to heart, and merciful men are taken away. 
none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. And let the ministers of God begin to lay to heart their true condition and the evils which threaten the church. The enemy is coming like a flood, and yet the watchmen hold their peace. They are asleep. They sound no alarm. They appear to be at ease in Zion. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Let us indulge our imagination for a moment in conceiving of two ministers of equal talents and opportunities, but one of whom only has been faithful, self-denying, and laborious, entering together into the presence of their common Lord and appearing before his judgment seat. The first is accosted in a language which surprises him. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. The other is confounded and abashed before he hears his sentence. His own conscience has already anticipated his doom. We need not be surprised that he trembles and would gladly hide himself in some secret cavern. But stern necessity is laid upon him, and he is arraigned, and the charge against him is not for any enormous crime, nor his conduct was always moral and decent, but it is for sloth and unfaithfulness. He had a talent and did not improve it. He was a steward, and yet he was unfaithful in dispensing his Lord's goods. And the dreadful sentences take the wicked and slothful servant who neglected to do his Lord's work, and cast him in outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. O oh, wretched man, where now are your treasures, your houses and lands, and all your earthly possessions for the sake of which you betrayed your master and ruined your soul? There is a class of ministers whose situation is truly deplorable. We know of no set of men who claim our compassion more. They are such as having been invested with the sacred office, by ordination, are unable to find any people willing to accept of them as their pastor, or if they should happen to obtain a settlement for lack of acceptableness, are speedily pushed off and sent to float upon the wide world without the means of comfortable subsistence for their families. They wander about in search of a place of rest, and after spending much time in being at inconvenient expense and visiting vacant churches, are after all disappointed and are often reduced to great straits to obtain the bare necessities of life. No doubt there are good men who have gone through the usual course of preliminary studies and have had the hands of the presbytery laid upon them, who nevertheless are entirely unfit for the work, and however they may be regularly called by men, have never received the call of God to be ministers in his church. For when God calls a man to any work, he always furnishes him with the necessary qualifications. If any person is found destitute of these, and cannot not acquire them, though he may be in the sight of the church a regular minister, and his ministrations valid, yet he has mistaken his road, and sometimes such persons are convinced of this when it is too late. For according to the doctrine commonly received among us, the ministry can be laid down only by a regular deposition from office by the competent authority. Whether this be a correct doctrine has been with us a manner of serious and increasing doubt. If deposition were not attended with lasting disgrace, we should not be disposed to dissent from the received opinion. But take this case. 
A young man is put to learning by his parents that he may become a minister, and when he arrives at the proper age, he makes a serious profession of religion. His intellect may be sound, and his literary acquisitions may be good, but he speaks in a way so stammering and so cold and uninteresting that it is painful to everyone to hear and to be obliged to do this once a week would not only be unedifying, but would be a penance which few persons would be contented to endure long. Now this young man ought to have had his attention directed by his friends and advisors to some pursuit not requiring public speaking and the presbyteries and classes when candidates appear before them on trial should make a particular experiment of their gifts in this respect which, however, is much neglected, and young men who are scarcely ever proper judges of their own defects are introduced to an office for the duties of which they possess no competency. Formerly it was a part of every candidate's trials for the ministry to preach in public, and the sermon was on this account called a popular discourse. But the salutary custom begins at least in the presbyteries and the section of country to be laid aside and a candidate is only required to read his popular sermon before the presbytery as he does any other written discourse required of him. In consequence of this, no proper trial is made of the candidate's capacity to speak audibly and fluently in public. But the point to which we wish to direct our remarks is that a conscientious person who has been induced to enter the ministry without the necessary qualifications when he is convinced of his incompetency should be permitted with the consent of the presbytery, to resign his office. If he may not, then a man who has become a preacher without the call of God, and all will acknowledge that such a case may occur, must be forced to remain in an office, the duties of which he is unable to fulfill, and which he ought never to have entered. And hence it comes to pass that there are among us many presbyters who preach not at all, and hang heavily on the skirts of the church, and are an encumbrance to our ecclesiastical bodies. We see not why, even in cases of conformed ill health, which disqualifies a man from preaching, as when the voice is lost, a minister should not be permitted to resign his office. But what if he should so recover it again as to be able to preach? We answer that all that would be necessary would be to recognize him again as a minister." He would need no new ordination, as indeed the custom is not to reordain a minister who has been deposed and excommunicated when he is restored to his office and standing in the church. We are aware that our book of discipline makes no provision for a minister's resigning his office after ordination. But the question is, would it not be well to have such a provision? And do not the circumstances of our church call for something of the kind? What we have said on this point we wish to be considered is not the expression of a decided opinion on the subject, respecting which probably the conductors of this review would not entirely agree, but is intended to turn the attention of the church to the point and to elicit discussion which may lead to the adoption of a new section in our book of discipline or may confirm us more fully in the doctrine which has been commonly received and in favor of which we are aware that there are some able advocates we would take this occasion to declare that we hardly know a more responsible and awful duty which men are ever called to perform than conferring the sacred office on a fellow creature. The regulations of our church on this subject are truly excellent, 
and that they were always carried into effect with that strict fidelity which the importance of the transaction demands all would be well. But we seriously apprehend that these trials are too often but superficially entered into, especially as it regards personal piety. If a young man is a member of the church, if he has been through college and a theological seminary and seeks to be a minister, it is thought to be hard to throw any obstacle in his way after his having spent so much time and expense and preparation. We think that the laxity of, of presbyteries does not relate so much to the literary qualifications and orthodoxy required as to the examination on experimental religion and making a thorough trial of the ability of the candidate to preach to the acceptance and edification of the people.